The subject of tonight is Avram Avinu, Abraham. And I want to I want to try to build like a unified theory of Abraham. And I want to start with asking a whole bunch of questions. Because of course, in this week's Parsha, we read all the stories about Avram Avinu, last week's Parsha as well. And I think that the way Avram Avinu is presented really demands scrutiny. So if you look at the Rambam, the Rambam has a prelude to the laws of Avodah Zarah, the laws of idolatry. In chapter 1, the whole chapter is a story. It's very uh, unlike him, where he gives background. He says the story, the background of, of idolatry, how it developed, how it progressed, how it spiraled out of control. And Avram Avinu is the individual who is the turning point. He's the one who introduces a new idea, who disavows Avodah Zarah, who rejects Avodah Zarah, introduced the idea of one God of the world, faced a lot of resistance, is able to overwhelm people with his logic and his argumentation, and eventually begins the movement, which begins the family, which begins the tribe, which is the Jewish people. And what's surprising is that if you open up the Torah and read the stories that the Torah decides to tell us about Avram Avinu, they're not ones of a man on a mission to promote faith, rather they're ones of kindness. This week's parasha we read, Avram Avinu, even though he's 99 years old, he's recently ailing from his circumcision ceremony. It's hot outside, and he's desperate for guests. He sits outside, and he has the three guests who look like pagans. Ultimately, they're revealed to be angels. And he runs five times. The Torah says he ran, Vayaretz, Vayaretz, Vayaretz. He goes, gets them food, gets them water, gets them bread, makes cakes, the whole deal. Incredible, overwhelming chesed. And the episode that comes right afterwards is this intercession on behalf of stone. The Almighty tells him that Stone, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed because of their sins. Abraham decides to put on this monumental effort of prayer. He prays, maybe there's 50, maybe there's 40, all the way to 10. Even though Sodom, they're natural enemies. They're the ones who stood for everything that Abraham came to oppose. Yet he showed, he showed so much kindness and benevolence towards his foes. So it's just surprising that, you know, there's a lot of stories that we could have been told about Avram Avinu. Uh, we could have said, well, he went to give lectures, and he went to give debates, and Chazal fill in the gap, the Midrash fills in the gap. But why would does the Torah choose to present him as a paragon of kindness and not a paragon of faith and amuna? Question number one. Question number two, Avram Avinu, we know, it's still true, that he was the paragon of faith. He was someone who was the first to discover God. And not only that, he made it his life mission to disseminate that in the world. Additionally, we know he was the master of chesed. That's also true. In fact, the scripture tells us, Titan emes Yakov, chesed la'avram. It's inextricably linked with Avram Avinu is the quality of chesed. And the question that, the second question I want to examine, how is it possible that someone is able to excel in such disparate qualities? How is it possible that someone who has a moon of faith of God, you would imagine he would just, he would just be in constant prayer, you know, that's between man and God on, on one hand. On the other hand, kindness between man and man. So was Avram, how, what, the, what was Avram Avinu's trick to be not only the best in one area, to be the best in an entirely different domain that's almost in opposition, right? Interpersonal relationships seems to draw away from someone's relationship with the Almighty. So what, what, how did Avram Avinu do it? Question number two. And now also, the stories that the Torah does decide to tell us about Avram Avinu's kindness are also surprising. Because if you look at the stories in this week's Parsha, the one about helping the three travelers, and the second about trying to intercede on behalf of Sodom, what's surprising is that in both instances, the recipient does not actually benefit. Rashi tells us, we know, angels don't eat food. So what were the angels doing? They made believe like they were eating. 
So Avram Avinu, the great kindness, the, the, the pinnacle of kindness in the world is a story where the recipient doesn't actually benefit. The second story we're told about Avram Avinu is that he tried, he tried, the emphasis on he attempted to try to save Sodom, but ultimately was unsuccessful and Avram returned to his place. So out of the, you know, we assume there's millions of episodes of chesed that he did in his life, of kindness that he did in his life, and the Torah chooses to select as examples for eternal uh, inspiration of what chesed ought to be instances where the recipient didn't benefit. So it's, it's interesting. Why would the Torah choose that? Now, what's problematic, I think, from this week's parsha is that the Torah, specifically in this week's parsha, presents Abraham in opposing lights. On one hand, the first two stories of the parsha of Ramavinu is doing kindness on an overwhelming scale. And the last two stories of the Torah are Avram Avinu seemingly acting unkind. The second to last episode, of course, his own son, Ishmael, Yishmael, is misbehaving. So what does he do in consultation, of course, with the Almighty? He sends him with a loaf of bread, a pitcher of water, into the desert. You're on your own. How old is Ishmael at the time? He's a teenager. If you have someone who relies on you, even if they're not family, a blood relative, you don't send them out into the wilderness on their own to fend for themselves. Certainly not your own son. And certainly not someone, Avraham Avinu, who we established at the beginning of the parasha, is a paragon of kindness with absolute total strangers, pagans, random people. He welcomes them in and does all the fanfare and running around even though he's ailing. Yet his own son, he sends him away. Number one. And of course, the last story of the parsha is the story of the arcade, the binding of Isaac, where Abraham tries to murder in a barbaric way his own son. Now, murder in any context is wrong and evil and heartless. To murder your own son is unthinkable. How do we reconcile Abraham's kindness with supreme unkindness on a more minor level with Ishmael, which is also unimaginable, but certainly with, with Yitzchak, with trying to kill him. Now, you'll say, well, he didn't kill him. The truth is, he didn't kill him. But if you read the story, it's clear that had the Almighty not stopped him, in the last minute, he would have done it. So what's the rationale? How is Abraham acting so unkind? So that's question number four. But perhaps you may say, well, the Almighty said to him, send Yishmael away and kill Yitzchak. So blame on the Almighty. But that, that, that just passes the question up along the line of command. So why did the Almighty do it? Why is the Almighty telling him to act unkind? You know, it doesn't seem to be proper. If someone's kind, they should be kind. They should do mitzvahs. Right? You should be, why is the Almighty encouraging him to do something which is opposing to what you assume he spent a whole lifetime developing and honing and perfecting as evident by the beginning of the parsha and Abraham's name? Avraham Avinu was tested with 10 tests. Now, what the identity of those tests is a debate because it doesn't say what those tes- 10 tests are. Sure All fail, right? And he was successful in all of them. That's what, that's the mission. The mission says that he was successful in all of them. What exactly is the breakdown of what was a test and what was not a test? All the Rishon and all the commentators debate. But those two of banishing Ishmael, everyone agrees. And of course, the binding of Isaac, everyone agrees that those are part of Abraham's tests. So I think you could draw a lesson, practical lesson maybe for parenting and pedagogy for modern times. But clearly there's an element of, of Abraham. There's, you know, there's, 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 there's the element of Abraham being confronted with a test. What is the nature of that test specifically oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the area of kindness? I want to throw in some more uh, 
sources about Avram Avinu, about Abraham, that are not part of our parsha. Uh, the Tanchuma tells us, and there's many sources in the Gemara, the Gemara in Yuma, for example, other sources in, in, in Medrash Rabbah say, Avram Avinu studied all of Torah, Kodim Shinitna, before it was given. We know Moshe Rabbeinu was six generations from Avram Avinu, from Abraham. And he was when he gave Torah to the Jewish people. Where did he get the Torah from? From the heavens, from God. It wasn't in this world. Yet, Avram Avinu somehow managed to access Torah. And in fact, not only accessed it, he actually observed it. That's what the Gemara says. And in several places, the Gemara asks the question, How did Abraham study Torah? He didn't have a teacher. He wasn't able to access it. There was no bush shelf. No, it wasn't in this world. How did he access the Torah? And we get a very strange answer. One opinion says, Reb Levi says he learned it from himself. Also, how do you learn Torah from yourself? Comes along Rabbi by Yechai, and he says like this. Listen to this imagery. His two kidneys became like two wellsprings of water that taught him Torah. His kidneys turned into wellsprings of water of Torah. What does that mean? Obviously, it's what we would call a medrash pliya. It's a very perplexing and, um, and flummoxing midrash. What is going on over here? What, what's, what is this notion of Avraham Avinu studying from himself? His two kidneys become two wellsprings of Torah. What's going on over here? And the last question I want to ask about Avraham Avinu is in the Gemara in Avodazara, the Gemara says, Abraham had Torah, as we just mentioned, but his Torah, in his book of Torah, he had a book, like we have in our, in our Talmud, we have a book called Avodazara, Laws of Idolatry. He also had a book on the Laws of Idolatry. But, while in our book it contains five chapters, in Abraham's book it contained 400 chapters. He had a much bigger book. His, his, the book of Avodazara that Abraham had, that was much more exhaustive than ours. But what was the content of that is a great mystery. What did Abraham have? Why was his book, why, why did his book of Avodazar, his book of idolatry have to include, why was it 80 times larger than ours? These are six questions I want to, uh, I want to discuss about, about Abraham. So I want to start to try to build here a model of, of Abraham's greatness. We're told, I'll read it in prayers in the morning, that is levavo nemalaponecha. The Almighty selected Abraham, and you found his heart is trustworthy to God. What does it mean that Abraham's heart was trustworthy to God? Let's try to build a model here. I want to begin with an idea that emuna, faith, and chesed, kindness, are necessarily linked. And I'm going to prove the link, and then we're going to try to understand the link. First, let's prove the link. First, first of all, the Gemara says in Avodah Zarah, it's discussing, just a little backstory there, it's discussing the Shemad of Hadrian, the first holocaust of Hadrian in the 130s, where Hadrian started assassinating rabbis, and the 10 Arude Malchus, the Yom Kippur, the 10 martyrs. So there's a discussion amongst two of the rabbis if they're going to have the merits to survive the assassination attempts and all the rabbis. But the Gemara is discussing... Well, did you study Torah, did you, or did you do kindness as well? And the Gemara concludes there that if someone studies Torah, but doesn't perform kindness, it is similar to someone who doesn't believe in God. If you don't have kindness, it's as if you don't have God. And that's, of course, a very strange thing, especially someone who's studying Torah. 
The Gemara suggests that if someone is a Torah scholar, but doesn't have kindness, he doesn't have faith. Well, how do you say that someone who's a Torah scholar does not have faith? What do you mean? He's studying Torah. Is there not anything that's more an act of faith to study God's Torah? And yet, if his kindness is lacking, he lacks faith. That's what the Gemara says. So clearly there is a link between faith and kindness. If you don't have faith, you don't have kindness. So much is clear in the Gemara. Now, when we suggested that Abraham, when we see that Abraham excels in both these areas, well, it's starting to take shape because they're linked. If you don't have kindness, by definition, you don't have faith. Well, if you do have faith, by definition, you do have kindness. Those two go together. Now, how they go together, that's the next step. But clearly, they go together. So when we talk about Abraham achieving greatness in such different fields, that's because we're ignorant and we, we assume it's different fields. The truth is, Chazal tells us it's the same field. If you have one, you must have the other. If you don't have one, it's obvious you don't have the other either. That's item number one. Now, item number two, kindness. We make a critical mistake with kindness. We assume, typically the assumption is, if someone has a need, then kindness fills the need. The first Rashi in this Torah, this parsha, tells us that it was so hot outside, and there was no guests, and Abraham was distressed and dejected, lamenting the fact that there's no guests. Oh wait a minute! If there's no guests, everyone's taken care of. What's the problem? We assume that kindness is for the guests. The truth is, the kindness is not for the guests; it's for the doer. In fact, Chazal say more. Then, Yoser Mashaba buys Osema Ani. If you have a, a, a homeowner, the, the philanthropist who gives charity to the poor person, so he's doing him a favor. But who's doing a bigger favor? The poor person is doing with the owner. So when someone gives charity, it's not for the poor person, it's for themselves. Someone does kindness, it's not for someone else, it's for themselves. Abraham is upset that he's not able to do kindness, not because there's no people, not because there's people of need whose needs are not fulfilled. His need is not fulfilled. Now, Chazal actually point out that Avram Avinu, uh, we saw as evident in last week's parasha, Abraham, had lo- he's a bustling household. He had lots of people working. He had 318 people working for him. He could have very easily passed off, especially when he's so sick, the task of kindness to one of his underlings. Yet he did it himself, despite being in tremendous agony, recovering from his surgery. Clearly, to do charity... And to do kindness is not about the recipient, it's about you. And in fact, the Gemara says, this is a Gemara, the Gemara says that Rabbi Meir says, when he was questioned, well, the Almighty hates poor people, otherwise he wouldn't make them poor. Says Rabbi Meir, no. The reason why the Almighty makes poor people is to give the opportunity to the people that are not poor to help them. Indeed, when someone gives charity to the poor person, they're helping the poor person. But you know what? You know what's a lot better at helping other people? God. If it's all about helping the, uh, the less fortunate, then, okay, then God should do that. In the perfect world, God should do that. The answer is no. It's about helping the giver transform themselves into a person of faith. So think about this. This is what we're suggesting here. Faith and kindness are interlinked. If you have faith, by definition, you have kindness. If you don't have kindness, by definition, you don't have faith. How do you get faith? Via kindness. Kindness is the way you get emuna. If someone says, I don't have kindness, well, then we know you don't have a muna. Don't make me kind of. How does that work? I want to hear just that this is the critical point. We have a problem. The problem is called the Yetzirah. 
The Yetzirah, if we have a problem connecting to God, relating to God, having faith with God, it's because the Yetzirah creates a barrier between us and God. In fact, the name that Chazal, the Talmud in the book of Shabbos 105b, gives to the Yetzirah, El Zar, a foreign God. You wouldn't connect to God? The only reason why you cannot do that is because there's some other foreign God that is a barrier. So imagine you have this barrier between you and God. So who, who are you with? You're just, you're just there by yourself. Thus, the Yetzirah's barrier between you and God causes selfishness. All you have is yourself. When you have just yourself, who do you not have? You don't have faith with God, and you don't have kindness with other people. The, the core reason why we do not have kindness, or we should not, or we ought not have, or we potentially may not have kindness, and the reason why we potentially may not have faith is because of the Yetzirah. In order to connect to God, we have to get rid of the foreign God. You get rid of the foreign God, there's no barrier separating you from the rest of the world, you're no longer living just with yourself, and by definition you'll notice the needs of others. My grandfather gave a mushal, a parable, where he would say, imagine someone's locked up in a room with no windows and no doors. All they have is themselves. Selfishness, that the whole world ends with you. You've got a little window in the wall, and suddenly you see everything. You see the grass, you see the people, you see the pedestrians, you see the trees, you see the, the sky and the stars, everything. We're able to break down the barrier of the Yetzirah. By definition, we'll have, we'll see God and we'll see other people. If someone does not see other people, they're not kind, obviously the barrier is still there. If the barrier is still there, they don't have faith. Thus, they indeed are connected. So what happens to Abraham? Who's Abraham? What mitzvah does he get? Here's the mitzvah of brismila, circumcision. What is a circumcision? The Arla, the foreskin, is the Yetzirah. So the Gemara says, the Gemara in Sukkah. If someone cuts off the Yetzirah, if they totally eradicate the influence of the Yetzirah, they deserve to get the mitzvah of brismila. Because the brismila is the embodiment, it's, it's the personification, it's the mitzvah that manifests what life's all about. You have something blocking, so to speak, the crown of God. The purpose of life is to connect to God. The problem is it's all covered up. So what do we do? Yetzirah is there. You have to cut off, remove it, remove the influence, and then as a result of that, you will have the relationship with God. And by the way, once you're not tied up with yourself, once you remove the Yetzirah, you'll have the, uh, the faith as well. Thus, Chazal stress that when the, the, the pagans come, what's the first thing he does? Yudach mayim, wash your feet. Why? Rashi tells us, because on the feet there was little bits of idolatry. Yet when Lot, when they went to Lot, he says, first stay the night, then wash your feet. What's the idea? It is that Lot, he did kindness on his own merit. You see, weary travels, you first take care of them, don't be all religious. He viewed kindness in a silo, in, in a vacuum. Kindness for kindness sake. Load his kindness, that was, first we'll do the kindness. Don't, don't get all religious on me. Avram Avinu, the whole kindness is an act of Amuna. Therefore, uh, it is oxymoronic to say, we'll have kindness when the pagan flecks of dust are right in your feet. That those, those two cannot possibly uh, go together. Thus, our view of chesed as being a standalone, uh, a standalone act of benefiting others is actually untrue. Let's try to take this a step further. Abraham studied Torah, but how did he do it? From within. Remember last time, the Gemara makes a few interesting connections. Firstly, the Gemara says that a child at conception has a soul, 
and a child at birth gets a Yetzirah. So if you want to know what's life like if the Yetzirah is removed from the equation, you look at the soul pre-birth. That, that's, that, that's what you would do. And the Gemara says, a child in utero, there's a ner dolokal rosher, there's a candle lit on his head. What's a candle? Every time Chazal speaks about a candle, it's ner Hashem nishmas adam. It's a soul, the soul is on the head, it's nothing bothering it. There's no Yetzirah to cover it up. However, once the baby's born, say Chazal, say, says the Pasuk in Mishle, says the verse in Mishle in, in Proverbs, Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam, the soul, the candle of Hashem is the soul of man. It's searching in the innards of his, uh, of his gut. What happens to the soul once the Yetzirah is slapped on it? It's submerged into the most innermost parts of someone's essence, of someone's body. It's, it's there, but its influence is neutralized. Say Chazal again. Child in utero knows all of Torah. What happens at birth? He gets the Yetzirah and forgets it. And in fact, says the Maharal, if you look at the two Gemaras, one that says he forgets the whole Torah at birth, and one that says he gets the Yetzirah at birth, one in Nida and one in Sanhedrin, both of them substantiated from the same Pasuk, Lefetah Chatas Rovets. Both of them use one Pasuk, one verse that says, at the entrance sin crouches to teach you he forgets Torah and he gets the Yetzirah. Says the Maharal, it's all the same thing. The reason why he knew Torah, because his soul knows Torah. The soul exists from the higher realms. It had Torah even before there was Torah here. That's where the soul's from. It in, its, in itself knows Torah. Problem is, there's a Yetzirah, so you forget it. The Torah is there within your innards. If you remove the Yetzirah, well, it's right there, once again, to flourish as before. Say Chazal, how did Ram Avinu study Torah? Well, he's the one who has the brismila. He's the one who got rid of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. He got, he got rid of the inclination. He undid the process of birth. And therefore, he restored it to the way it was prior. It's just a soul. There's no impact of the Yetzirah. As a result, the Torah, once again, gushes forth, what does it say? From his kidneys. Kidneys, that's the, elsewhere in the Torah, uh, uh, it's used as a euphemism from someone's innermost parts. The soul that was locked up Underneath him gets exposed to the world. I want to give a muscle for that. In Houston, Texas, we have the, the oil, right? So imagine on your ranch, they find a, a huge oil deposit 8,000 feet below ground. So you may say, well, you're rich. You know why? Because I have all the oil. Problem is, the oil, the fact that you theoretically own oil and your mineral rights two miles beneath the ground, that is of no use to you. Now, if we were to take a little freeze frame and try to understand what the oil is going through, the oil's pressurized. The oil's eager to go to the, to the, to the, to the surface. Problem is, it's covered up. So what do you gotta do? You gotta drill a hole all the way through the, the massive layers that separate you from your oil. Once you make a little hole there and you allow the pipe, allow the influence to go forth, it gushes forth and explodes out, uh, to the surface. Avram Avinu, like all of us, has a soul, had a soul that had Torah baked in. And it was eager to go forth. Problem is it was stuck up in your kidneys. What was covering it? The Yetzirah. That's what happened at birth. It was totally, the, the hand on your head was now demoted to searching the innards of your heart. He, you penetrate it, you destroy the Yetzirah, you rid yourself of the Yetzirah, you undo it, and right away the, the Torah comes flowing out as before. How does this work? Let me get a little bit more technical here. What was his path 
to growth. So my grandfather used to always say, in the Shabbos morning prayers, there is a, a statement that we say, a very strange statement. There's no value like your value in this world. We tell God. There's nothing besides for you in Olam Haba. What does this mean? This world, there's no value like your value. In, in next world, in Olam Haba, there's nothing besides for you. What does this mean? So, my grandfather used to always say, this world is a world of values. We each can arbitrarily construct for ourselves what is valuable and how valuable it is. Everyone has an internal totem pole, so to speak, a hierarchy of values. What's important to me? And you know what? Some things are important, some things are more important, some things are less important. Every person, the choice that we have is to assign values to items in the world. And by the way, what's a choice? A choice is a confrontation between two values. If I say, oh, do you want the pizza or you want a smack? Well, you don't want the smack. It's not a value on your, on your priority list. So you'll just, so it's not, it's not really a choice. You don't have to grapple with anything. But if I say, do you want this thing that you want or that thing that you want? Then you have to decide, well, which one of them is higher on your priority hierarchy? This world is Olama Arachim. It's the world of values. Everyone can do whatever they want to assign for themselves values. And by the way, what are the values are, you know, what determines, you know, the construction of the values? It's your Yetzirah typically. If you fight the Yetzirah, maybe you have a chance. But he says, okay, well, my sports team and, you know, everything besides for God. It's the foreign God. My stamp collection, my pet. Those are my highest priorities, my political beliefs. All those go to the top. Where's God? Hopefully, maybe he's not even a value at all. That's this world. And we say on Shabbos, every Shabbos we say, God, there's no value like your value in this world. In this world where we have the opportunity to perhaps reject you as a value, we decided to make you the top value. And Olam Abad, the next world, the option is taken away. No longer can each person arbitrarily assign for themselves a totem pole list of values. Now, what is idolatry? Idolatry is where someone has a priority, a value in their lives that supersedes God, that's greater than God. That, that's obviously, that's what we call a foreign God. You know, because it's, it's not God, yet it takes priority over God. So if there's a conflict between the two, you select that. So as an example, we all like our life. Just the fact that we're living for healthy, normal people, that's a very high value. But, legitimately, some people, their children's lives value more. You see people that run into the, to the, to the burning building to save, God forbid, should never happen to any one of us. But they save their kid. Well, why? You might die. Doesn't matter. If your kid's in there, that's maybe, it's a higher value. Well, what if there's a confrontation between your life and God? Then that's a really hard decision. Because they're both very high values, but we're encouraged as Jews to give up our life as martyrs if there is a conflict in the two. Someone says, bow down to the idol, reject God, or I kill you. You have to get, you have to bite bullets. Why? Because God has to be the top value. Nothing can be more important, even your life itself. Essentially, when we say every Shabbos morning, there is no value like you, God, it's a declaration of intent to give up our life in martyrdom should the opportunity Arise. What's a sin? 
A sin, says the Gemara in Sota, everyone knows the famous Gemara, a sin is ruach shtus, temporary insanity. Why? Because temporarily for some moment, a person chooses to do something against what God does. For a brief fleeting moment, something that's not God, something that God explicitly rejects, catapults God on your totem pole. That's absolutely insane. Someone wants to do a sin. Fine. But God says no. How could you possibly do it? Well, obviously, if you did it, it's evidence that it, it superseded God for that moment on your totem pole. That's obviously insane. So <laughs> someone to say, oh, I have a desire to do the sin. But that's greater than God. That's obviously insanity. But there's no other way to explain such behavior. So when we have our book of idolatry, five chapters. What is that? What, what is the book all about? The book's about establishing God as the top priority in our, in our worlds. Top. Thus, if someone says, oh, let's establish a value higher than God, no, that's idolatry. Now, the truth is, Chazal already say, the Marshal famously says in, in Makos, that any sin has the stench of idolatry connected to it as well. Because a sin is a temporary moment of idolatry, a temporary moment where some value that you desire catapults God in your totem pole, otherwise you wouldn't sin. So, so it's not quite idolatry because it's only for a temporary fleeting moment. It's only a momentary insanity, right? Real idolatry is where you're cognitively aware of your decision to, uh, to, to supplant God from the top uh, of your value chain. But uh, a sin essentially has an element of idolatry to it as well. So when we say... We have five books of the laws of idolatry. That refers God as the top priority in our lives. Anything else would be idolatry. Abraham had a much more exhaustive book of idolatry. Remember, why would we have values that are higher than God? Because of the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah would say, oh, your, plant, you know, your plants or your pets or your stamp collection, those are high priorities. Sins are, it's only the Yetzirah. That's a product of this world, of Alamazet. Abraham had no Yetzirah. He got rid of it. To him, he had, not only was God the top priority, but what was the second, third, fourth, fifth? God. All, exactly. He had all, he was, God was the sole priority. So let's let illustrate this in a way. What if someone does a mitzvah with insincere or imperfect motivations? It's known shalom lishma, not done perfectly. Well, yes, the mitzvah is a mitzvah. The action part of the mitzvah is pure, but the motivation part, that's still influenced by the Yetzirah. In fact, the Gemara says, to do a mitzvah shalom lishma, to do a mitzvah with imperfect motivations, really is bad. It's like a sin. But it's allowed because this will maybe bring you towards doing a mitzvah perfectly. Because how could you possibly do an action governed by the Yetzirah? How is this any different than idolatry? So yes, the action part of the, of, of the mitzvah is, is good, but the motivation, who's telling you to do this? Your Yetzirah is telling you, you listen to Yetzirah? How could you possibly do that? That's also idolatry. But for us, we have, you know, we're saying you do that, but maybe hopefully as a result, you'll get to doing a mitzvah perfectly. We allow it because it's a necessary evil. Avram Avinu had no Yetzirah, he got rid of it entirely. Therefore, every mitzvah that he did, he did it with, it was a perfect mitzvah, perfect deeds, but also perfect intentions. Thus, back to kindness. Abraham did kindness. Why did he do kindness? So we already suggested he did it because of, of faith, because of God. Now it's ever more clear. Abraham had the 400 chapters, which is everything, not just that God's a top priority, God's the only priority. Everything that's not God is 
to him as unthinkable as idolatry. To do chesed, to do kindness, and say, oh, other people will think I'm benevolent. Abraham would call that idolatry. Why? Because Yetzirah, your evil inclination, the foreign god, is telling you to do kindness? That's idolatry. Thus he expanded, he enlarged, he augmented the parameters of idolatry. What were the steps of his growth? So we see kindness, unmatched kindness. And then the Almighty tells him, your son Ishmael, I want you to banish him. What? That's unkindness. Okay. But did Abraham do kindness for its own merit? No. He did everything was motivated by God. Everything was motivated by God. As a result, if God tells you to do unkindness, then that's really a test for Abraham. It's a test of his motivations. Is there any value of kindness on its own merit? If there is, then you don't banish your kid. If it's only one value, it's only God, absolutely. And even the greatest test of all time, on one hand, there's murder. On the other hand, it's your own kid. It's your legacy. It's heinous. It's what you spent your whole life trying to fight. But God tells you to do it. That's the ultimate test. Do you have any priority in your life? Is there any value that you hold dear that's independent of God? Is there, because in Abraham's world, that's idolatry. To withhold from killing Isaac when God tells you, that would show that not killing, not killing your own kid is something on its own merit, irrespective of God, matters to Abraham. Abraham says, I'm willing to do it because I only have one priority. It's only God. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to slaughter him. And indeed, when we started off this, we said that the Almighty inspected Abraham, that you found his heart was committed to God. Indeed, Abraham's heart, which Chazal say elsewhere, refers to the Yetzirah. It's the motivation. With all your hearts, say Chazal, that it means with the Yetzirah. The Almighty inspected Abraham's Yetzirah and found that it was entirely committed to God. Thus, all our questions are answered. Let's quickly revisit the questions. Abraham is presented as the paragon of kindness and of faith. Well, those were both the result of the same. He got rid of the Yitzhak, he had both. How did he do it? Well, it was only one process. Of course, it's a multi-pronged process on how to get that. But the destination is you fight the Yitzhak and you see the entire world, both the Almighty and your fellow man. The Torah specifically tells us that his kindness yielded no practical benefit to the recipients to tell us that the kindness was not about the recipient. It's about him and his internal transformation. And indeed, Abraham acted inconsistently. On one hand, he's, he's kind. On the other hand, he's, he's not. Well, no, that's, that's consistent. Abraham was motivated by God only. And the God motivated the kindness and God motivated the unkindness. All that was the same. It's very consistent. And by the way, Abraham studied the entire Torah. How do you do it? Well, we could all do it as well. We all have the Torah locked in our soul within us. You access it by removing the reason why you don't have it. Removing the Yitzhak, it will be restored to the way it was prior. And why Abraham had 400 chapters of, of, of laws of idolatry? Yes. To Abraham, in Abraham's world, not just the Yitzhak's motivation to make us sin or to make us do idolatry, which essentially is what the Yitzhak is, because it's, it's a foreign God within us. It's trying to motivate us to do idolatry, to do anything that's not the will of God is idolatry. And for us, we want to make sure that our actions, at least, are free of Yitzhak's influence. Abraham, he took the entire agenda of the Yitzhak, actions, 
priorities, values, and motivations and intentions, all that he included under the umbrella of idolatry, he disavowed it entirely. Umatsasa es lavavo neman afanah.